Welcome to Reconciled Church Miami, Pastor Aldo Leon. Heavenly Father, uh, we again, we, we, we read the book of Acts because it is a historical account of the power of the gospel that exists today. And so, Lord, we ask, we, 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 we beg in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would enable us to just be empowered, refreshed, moved um, in the ways that you have described yourself and your church here. Lord, you says that you, as your people gathered under the glory of your gospel, that you, you built them up and you added those who were being saved. And so, Lord God, we, we say move and do what you will as we preach through this book. Amen. Amen. So let me read the text. It's Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to the men of Judah and all your residents of Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you at the attention and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk. So after they spoke in tongues, they're like, y'all, those people are drunk. Um, but it's only three o'clock in the morning. Notice what he said. He said it's too early to get drunk. He didn't say, he just said it's nine. Maybe if it was five, you could say we was drunk. It's funny. It's only, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your, mong, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days. And they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene was pointed out to you by God, by God, by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did through him. As you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him on a cross and kill him. God raised him up and in the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. I, you have revealed the path of life to me. You fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Christ and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So, Spirit, 
comes, people speaking in tongues, so what? More, more so what of that? What is that about? They say, well, we're, we're confused about that. Maybe y'all are drunk. And I think a lot of times when we look at this event, we still are very confused about it. We think, okay, I think Pentecost is about the power, right? The power that I get by Pentecost. And power usually means some sort of humanistic thing that's about you conquering all of your problems. And, or we say, I think it's about the, just another Pentecost. So Pentecost happens so we can have tons of Pentecost. So everyone's like, let's have a new Pentecost, another Pentecost. That's the meaning of Pentecost. Or I think it's just about the tongues. And so the tongues event of Pentecost is about lots of tongues speaking or the power of the fire and whatnot. And so, so here, here's what I want to explain. So, so Pentecost happens. People speak in different languages, and, and they're like, what's going on? And Peter says, this is what's going on. Number one, Christ is our prophet who reveals truth to us. Part one of this message. Two, Christ is our priest who was offered for our sins. Number three, Christ, Christ is our king who rules us. That's the so what. So the, this crazy stuff happens, fire and wind, and people speaking on all these languages, and they're like, what's going on? Christ is the prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. That's the so what. So let me unpack the first so what. Christ is the prophet who reveals. Look, it says, no, these people are not drunk. This is what happened through the prophet Joel. So Peter began to say, remember what, what Joel said about prophecy and, and about the Lord's will being revealed? What's going on here is that Christ's coming is now revealing to us reality. Christ is now the prophet who reveals reality. That's what's going on. It's almost like when Abriella comes into a room and she knocks something over. She does a lot when she's angry. You know why she knocks stuff over? Because she's about to say something. So the point of her knocking something over is not that she knocked something over. And she said, knock something over now. Pay attention to what I'm about to reveal. So, man, fire and wind and smoke. What's that about? I'm about to tell you something about Jesus. And so when we see this, beloved, what, 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 what Acts is saying is that Christ is the prophet, not just a prophet, but he is the one person who shows us who God is. He is a prophet who reveals God, that's what Pentecost is about. So he's not the mystic who empowers us to speak in tongues. That's not the point, according to Acts. He's not the mighty lawgiver and the mighty uplifter and self-help improvement guru. He is a prophet to reveal to us salvation. He's not here to talk to us about ourselves, but he's here to talk to us about himself. Christ is a prophet who has come to reveal something. Well, there's three things I want to say about him being a prophet. What, 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 what exactly is he coming to reveal to us after Pentecost? First thing, he is a reality of the past. He is a reality of the past. Look, it says in Joel, Joel is a prophet, okay, in the Old Testament, which represents the prophets. And he says, listen, this, this is about the last days where Christ or it says that God will pour out his spirit on all humanity, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. I will pour out my, my spirit on male and female slaves in those days. So, so he's saying, listen, remember when Joel was talking about something that was going to happen? Someone was going to come and reveal things? Acts is saying that our past is understood. The past of the Bible, Joel's understood. The prophets understood in light of Christ. 
coming. But then he also quotes Psalm 16, where, jo- where, where, where David says, I saw the Lord before me because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. And you will not, you will not let me in Hades because you will, not, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. So Psalm 16, David's like, I'm secure. I will be okay because someone's going to be raised from the dead. So basically, what Acts is saying is that, man, the Bible was waiting for somebody to come who was going to be good enough for us. Someone had to be really good and give us credit for his goodness. The Bible's been longing. The whole Bible, Joel and the prophets and the Psalms have been longing for somebody to die for our sinfulness and to bring about a new reality. And what Joel's saying is, finally this person, this solution, this answer is now being revealed, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is showing us the reality of the past, the past of the scriptures, the past of human history, it's all about Christ. So, so we remember like in Genesis 3, where there was this person who was going to crush the head of the serpent and save us. Who was that? Jesus Christ. He's the one who's going to crush the serpent's head by being crushed for us. Remember in the scriptures where there's this person, is it out of Abraham, someone's going to come from Abraham who's going to bring blessing. So, Someone's going to leave their homeland. Someone's going to be cursed for us and bring blessing to all the nations. Who is this? Acts is saying it's Christ. It's Christ. And so all these things, whether we're talking about Abraham or we're talking about, you know, just, okay, and on the Old Testament, there's a lamb that takes away our sins. There's a, there's a, there's a priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. There's a temple where we're supposed to meet God. There is a mercy seat where we get mercy from God. Who is the lamb? Who is the mercy seat? Who is the temple? Who is the priest? Jesus Christ. That's the whole point that he's making here. All these things are about Christ. So we say, you know what? What was the whole point of Israel walking through the wilderness and then them dying, the whole generation dying, and the next generation going into the promised land? What was the point of that? Because Christ is an Israelite who dies in the wilderness for us and brings the next generation attacks to him to the promised land. That's what the whole story. What about Ruth? What's Ruth about, guys? What was the point of Ruth? Christ is our Boaz who buys us with his righteousness and his wealth and nobility and makes us the bride. That's the point of Ruth. What about Esther? <laughs> you know, what? I feel so sorry for women. They're told to be like Esther. Please don't be like Esther. Don't be a part of a beauty pageant where you, you, you I'm not going to even go there. What's the whole point of Esther? Esther is telling us that Jesus Christ is the one who put himself at risk before the king's holiness under the king's justice so that we can be preserved by him risking himself for us. So all of a sudden we're like, man, what's the Bible about? What's all this biblical history about? What's the point? And Peter's saying, Pentecost says, it's Jesus Christ, this person who died and was resurrected. And so now we understand that the, the veil of the Bible has been pulled back and we know who the purpose of that whole book was about. So Christ is a prophet who reveals that he's a reality of the past. But there's one more, two more things I want to say. He's also not the reality of the past. He's also the reality of the future. He's the reality of the future. It says in verse 17, 
in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. So Christ's coming not only talks about the past being about Christ, but it's telling us something about our future now. Christ coming into the world and being and, and living, dying and being resurrected is telling us about our future. Now, let me give you a, a, a picture that may help you process this. Uh, in the NBA or the NFL, we have something called draft, draft picks. Now, when a, draft, when, when, a, when a certain superstar player who has a lot of promise gets drafted, you know what they say? We have a future now. We have a future now. We have a new era now. We have a new day and age because we got Joel Embiid here. We got LeBron James. So because someone has come into our presence, our future now is secure and set. Make sense? You follow me? So what is Pentecost, tongue speaking, fire and wind saying to us? It's saying that because Jesus Christ has entered into existence, the old creation and its limitations has passed away and will one day ultimately pass away. And the new creation, our future hope, has now come into the present and we'll experience it fully one day. This is a new order, a new day that's based upon Christ coming into your life and uniting, it, uniting you to his life, death, and resurrection. So listen, let me, let me break this down for you. Um, your future is not bound in your plans to fix, in man's plans to fix reality and improve reality. Your, your, your future is bound up in Christ living for you, dying, and being raised and united in you to his work. Your future is not bound in how successful you will be, how, how fruitful you will be, how achieving you will be. It's bound in the fact that Christ has lived for you, he's died for you, he's been raised, and now he's united you to his work. Your future is not bound in the fact that you will succeed morally or vocationally or situationally or socially. Your future is bound in Christ coming into reality, existence, and uniting you to his work. But listen, Pentecost, wind, fire. What's the point? The point is this. Jesus is not securing your future by walking with you to be a better person so one day you'll have a bright future. That's not what Christ is doing. Let me say that again. Christ is not walking with you and proving you, helping you, so that one day you'll have a nice future based upon him leading you to the future. Christ has brought about your future hope, security already because he has come into the presence and entered into existence, lived for you, died for you, raised and united you to him. Our hope is not Christ bringing us to the future, but Christ bringing our future hope to us and him coming to us doing what he did. So he's a reality of the past, number one. He's a reality of the future. That's what Christ, that's what's being revealed here. Thirdly, he's a reality of the church. He's a reality of the church. Look, it says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your, mon- your drunk men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Now, people get excited about this, and they think everyone's going to have some sort of revelation. Let, let me explain to you what's going on here. Let's go to Numbers chapter 11. Remember, like, when we're going through Acts, you have to be very aware of the whole Bible. Let's go to Numbers chapter 11. So, in verse 16, listen to this. The Lord answered Moses, Bring me 70 men from Israel known to you as elders and officers of the people. Take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. Then I will come down to speak to you there. I will take some of my spirit who's on you and put the spirit on them, and they will help you bear the burden of the Lord so you can bear it, not bear it to yourself. So Moses was dealing with... He was the one who was revealing things about God to all these people. And so God was like, I'm going to pick 70 people, 
And some of that spiritual revelation that I give you, I'm going to give it to 70 people to bear the burden with you. And then when all these people start prophesying and talking about God and who he is, people are like, hey, Moses, you know, man, you're the prophet. Everybody can't be the prophet. You're the prophet. And look what Moses says at the end of this story. Are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them, then Moses returned to the camp. So you know what's going on here? This day has come now where all the church has been given a prophetic word to speak and reveal the glory of Christ. We are now not in the era where there were some people who were charged to prophetically reveal the glory of Christ. We are now in the age where the whole church has been empowered and equipped to speak gospel prophetic revelation. That's the point. We are now in that age where the whole church is fulfilling its role in unique ways. And so listen, we are, there's one of two people in the world. There's a selfie generation, right? What's the selfie generation? Look at me. Watch me. Follow me, right? That's the selfie generation. And then, and then there's the army of selfie people, and that's pretty much us, right? And then we become the, then we become the church, the same thing. Look at me, look at my life, look at my Christianity, right? The other, gener- the other kind of person is the four-year-old world. What's the four-year-old world? Look at dad, look at dad, look at mom. <laughs> what Acts is saying is that God has finally brought us into the reality of who we are. And who we are, we are, look at him, be amazed with him. Watch him. We are witnesses. We are prophetic witnesses to the work of Christ. That's who we are. That's who you are, beloved. You know what's the problem? Like, we don't know who we are. You know, we, don't, you know what we're, we're, we so struggle with identity because we're doing this all the time. You're looking at your, your vocational status, and you're looking at your moral status, and you're looking at your past, and you're looking at your present, and you're looking at your kids, and you're looking at your neighborhood, and, and you don't know who you are because you're looking at yourself. But what Pentecost is revealing that we know who we are. We are now an army of those who have identified by pointing to somebody else. That's who we are. You're a little kid who's been given a big finger to point to someone else's greatness. That's your purpose in life. Pentecost is revealing, number one, the reality of the past is Christ. The reality of the future is Christ. And the reality of the church is Christ. We are those who point to him and power to point to him. It's reality church. And here's the last thing I'll say about what, what kind of revelation is revealed by. What, kind of, what does it mean to say Christ is a priest who reveals? Here's the last thing. It's to say that he is a reality of revelation. He is a reality of revelation. So notice, when, when, when Peter explains what's going on here, he says, listen, this is about the last day revelation of God. Which is another way of saying, this is God's final word to humanity. This is God's last, Jesus Christ, and what he did is God's final word to reality. Now, let me give you another text that may be helpful. Uh, Hebrews 1, just listen to me. 1, it says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So, he's basically saying, I had a lot of things to say to humanity, and now when Christ came, I've said everything I'm going to say to you. Make sense? Like, you know, look, you have a conversation, you fight with people, and you're going back and forth, and you get to a point where, like, look, I, I, I don't got nothing else to say to you. I'm done. I said everything I'm going to say. You know what I'm talking about? God is saying, but world, the, anything I have to say to you now is finished in Christ. That's it. I have nothing else to say. Look at him. 
So I say, man, how do I know your glory? How do I know who you are? God says, my final word is Christ. You say, man, how am I saved? How am I transformed? How do I have hope? What's God's final word? Christ. Christ. What's, <laughs> what's the purpose for my life? Christ. How am I going to be changed? And how am I going to be moved? And how am I going to be inspired? Give me a word, God. Christ is the final word. Listen, if you're not moved and empowered and motivated by Christ's gospel word, nothing else will. People say, I need a word from God. And God's saying, the gospel of my son is God's final word. It's the last thing I have to say. And you know what I notice? Read the New Testament and read Revelation. God never says anything different. Revelation, you know what Revelation Oh, and, and, and they were saved by the blood of the Lamb, and they were kept by the blood of the Lamb, and they were empowered by the blood of the Lamb. And like it keeps going back to God's final word. So Pentecost is saying that Christ is the reality of our past, he's the reality of our future, he is the reality of the church, and he is God's final word to humanity. You want to know anything about God, you want to know anything about yourself, God has already said everything he's going to say to you in Christ. So the key is to know what God has revealed about you and himself in Christ. Make sense? So first main point, if you're a note taker, Christ, Pentecost, wind and fire, all this crazy stuff. Are you guys drunk? No, Christ is a prophet who reveals to us who God is. God's final word. Second main point, Christ is a priest who was offered. Christ is a priest who was offered. But I'm going to unpack this priest's offering in three ways. He's a priest who was offered firstly as a true man. It's a true man. Let me get verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you just as you yourself know. So this is the man. Jesus is the man that has been attested to you by signs and wonders. Let me put this back into perspective. So in the Old Testament, in the, in the creation account, God made a man. And this man was a priest. You know Adam was a priest? He was, the, the first creation was a, was, a, was a temple. And he was charged and given authority to expand the kingdom and this temple to all world. He was to subdue reality by expanding the parameters of God's temple where he meets us. And he was supposed to image God perfectly and reflect God's character perfectly. And so, Bible students, what happened with this first man who was supposed to image God and bring the temples to all the world as he subdued reality? What happened to him? He didn't do that. And so since that day, there has been a lack of a man. A man who could image God perfectly, a man who could be righteous and meet God's demands, and a man who could guard the temple and expand it to all reality. There has not been that man. And so Acts says, this is the man. This is a priest. This is the perfect man who images God perfectly. This is a man. And you know what's interesting? When Christ shows power over, over, over reality and he has miracles, you know what God is saying? You remember Adam was supposed to have kingly power to extend the, 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 the temple? Say, so this is the, this is, this is the man. This is the man who has kingly authority and power and righteousness to provide the solution. He is the perfect man, the righteous man, the perfect image bearer who God has now entrusted and equipped and called 
to be our Savior. Now, you know, you know what's interesting? When someone from the hood makes it, what do people in the hood say? We made it! Because someone very close to you arrives. Or when, like, someone, <laughs> you know, Venezuela, you know, wins uh, the, 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 the universal pageant, what do people in Venezuela say? We won! Why do they do that? Because they understand something about humanity. We, we, we were wired to find our victory and someone representative. And so all of a sudden now, what God is saying in Pentecost is, listen, Jesus Christ was a true man, a true righteous man, a true perfect man. And because he was perfect and he fulfilled everything and he arrived and he was obedient, you now and that man have arrived. Christ is a priest who offered himself as a true and perfect man for you. So like you can be in the hood and say, we made it. You can be on earth and all your sinfulness and corruption. And you see Christ and his perfection at the last man. And you can say, we made it. Because he made it. He's a priest who offers himself firstly as the true man. Isn't that good? Beloved, Pentecost is not about Christ perfecting our nature to be like God. Pentecost is about God perfecting Christ's perfect nature, God perfecting Christ's humanity and saying, this is your man to trust in. It's not about us making us arrive and go higher and higher. It's about Christ coming down and being the perfect man who fulfills God's charge. Here's the second thing I'll say about Christ being the priest who was offered. He's offered as a true price. He's offered as a true price. Look, it says, though he was delivered up to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him on a cross and kill him. Now, we got to do Bible study when we hear a word that cross. Like, what does it mean when he says you nail him to a cross? Does it mean you just put him on a piece of wood? It so happened to be a piece of wood. Let me, let me go back to Deuteronomy and explain what Peter is saying when he uses that word, you nailed Jesus to a cross. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 21. No, 21, 22. Look, it says in Deuteronomy 21, 22. If anyone's found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed and you hang his body on a tree, you're not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but you're to bury him that day for anyone who hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land for your God has given you the inheritance. So when Peter says this man was hung on a tree, he's saying that Jesus' death is a death where he experienced God's curses for us. His death was he took the curses, he took our place, and he died in our place. And listen, this is so important because what when we say Jesus died for us, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean that he kind of did something really inspiring for me? He like was so loving to me, and when I see his love, I feel so moved, and I change my life, and that's salvation. Is that the cross? Or, you know, like, he shows me how serious sin is. I mean, sin is so bad, Jesus died for it. So, man, I might, go, I might get punished someday. I should change my life. Is that the cross? Or is the cross something where God changes my nature and because he makes me a better person, now because of that new nature that God has given me through the cross, I am saved because of that new nature. Is that what happened in the cross? Or how about this? And the cross, Christ paid a down payment for my sins. And now the rest of my life is up to kind of be good enough. 
But when Peter says, listen, Jesus died on the wood of a tree, what, what he's saying is that, beloved, on the cross, Jesus paid the full penalty for all of our sins as he took our curses under God's holy, just wrath for us. And he doesn't save us by improving us, by transforming us. He saves us by taking our place and dying in our place. He replaces us. Jesus' death does not mean he gave a down payment for your life, but it means that he paid for all of your sins, beloved. Jesus' death does not mean that he's made you better, and now because your inner life is better, you're saved. He covered you in his blood, and because you're covered in the covering of his sacrifice, his wrath-bearing sacrifice, you're now hidden in Christ and redeemed. Peter's saying, listen, Jesus Christ is the priest who offered the true price for your salvation. So let me, let me, let me unpack that in some more ways. Listen. Jesus is a ransom price who paid your fee to God. He's not prescriptions for how you can pay a fee to God. He's your price. Jesus is your propitiation. You know what that means? That because Jesus suffered under the wrath of God's curses, he took all of your ugliness on himself and was punished, you have now, now Christ's wrath is satisfied. And you're not saved because now you're going to please God by your sacrifices, but Christ sacrificed the wrath of the Father for you on his body, and you're saved because of that. You're not saved because you're expiating your sins by moving them, you know, I'm I'm putting this off, I'm putting it off. No, on the cross, Jesus removed all of your sins, and that's why you're saved. You're not saved because you're living a Christian life that's reconciling you to the Father. You're saved because on the cross, Jesus paid your fee. He paid your penalty. He died your judgment, and he has reconciled you by his death. Beloved, the cross is not the first step, the first kind of click for you to then work out your Christian life and then be saved someday. The cross is a once-for-all payment where Jesus is a priest who pays it once for all. You know what that means? You don't have to pay anything to God anymore. You owe nothing to God for your sins anymore. At all. At all. Ever. That's good news, is it not? That means all of your sin payment comment, all your little ways you want to pay for your sins. Right? You want to pay for your sins by, by, you know, by how, how great your marriage is, you know, and you want to, you want to pay for your sins by how much you can hide. And some of you want to, want to pay for your sins by punishing yourself emotionally, physically, socially. And some of you want to pay for your sins by punishing others. It's been paid for. According to Acts, Jesus is the priest who paid the true price for all of our sins. All of our sins. He's a true man who lives good enough. He's a true price who pays the price. And he is thirdly, it's my last thing about Jesus being the true priest. He's a true new man. He's a true new man. Look at 24. It says, God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he's talking about how because Jesus was raised, because he is the man who passed the test and came on the other side of the grave, raised, we now have hope. Now, you know, you know, there's there's an obsession among people for newness, is it not? Aren't we obsessed with are we obsessed with newness? New job, new house, new weight, new image, new outfit, new city, new 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 marriage, new relationship, 
We're obsessed with a new us, aren't we? You know where that comes from? It comes from creation. God gave Adam this capacity to live a certain way and to, based upon that life, come on the other side in this kind of new creation reality. He was given the ability to make it all the way to the new final reality. And what Peter is saying, beloved, is that Jesus Christ is the true new man who brings true newness based on his resurrection. So it looks like this. You want to feel that sense of newness that gives you peace based upon how you can renew your personality, renew your lifestyle. And, and what, what Peter is saying is, listen, Jesus Christ is the newness in his resurrection who gives you that true newness. It's not you renewing yourself with all of your ways of doing it. You want to renew yourself by trying to elevate marriage, elevate kids, elevate status, elevate job, elevate, ele- elevate churchiness. You want to elevate and renew all these things to find this sense of newness. And Peter is saying, listen, Christ's resurrection is your newness. He is a new man. He is a final man. He is the one who lived, died, and was resurrected. And because he is a new and final man, all that newness that we need to find security and safety as people is going to be found in Christ's resurrection, not you renewing yourself. Make sense? So Christ is the true man. He's the true payment. And he's a true new man. Here's a third main idea that I want to say is that Christ is the king who reigns. So first main point, Christ is the prophet who reveals. Second main point, Christ is the priest who offered himself. Third main point, Christ is now the king who reigns. Now, the first way I want to unpack that is by saying he's the king who reigns presently. Presently. Let me get that from verse 32. Look at verse 32. It says, God has resurrected this Jesus, and we're all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he's been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from him the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you see and hear. So Christ now is sitting on the throne in the present, and he is now exalted in the celestial heavenly white house. And so this is super important because I think in American Christianity, we, we tend to think of the kingdom of Christ as being something that's going to happen someday later when Christ comes back. When he comes back, he's going to set up some kingdom in Israel, and that's, and that's what we're waiting for. Or we think like this, Christ's going to set up the kingdom when America becomes more Christian in the, in, in the White House. That's when the kingdom will be set up. Or you think, whenever I get more victory in my life, personally, that's when the kingdom's going to come. But beloved, Acts is saying... That right now, Christ is sitting on his throne. Right now, Christ is ruling and reigning on his throne. Right now, Christ has conquered sin, death, hell, and the devil. Right now, he has taken his place over reality. And so, we don't need to look for anything else to find that sense of Christ being in his place of dominion. He's there right now. Right now, Christ is ruling on his throne. Now, not when America becomes more Christian, not when he comes back someday in his second coming, but now Pentecost is saying, what's all this tongues and wind and fire and all that? What's it about? Christ is on his throne right now. Hallelujah. That's the point. But you, you may say, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, pastor. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I don't buy that. I believe that. Let me read verse 32 
to answer that idea. God has resurrected this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he's been exalted to the right hand of God and received the spirit of you seeing here. So where is Christ sitting on his throne right now? He's sitting on his throne in the place of authority. So listen. Um, is, is Donald Trump the ruler of, of Miami? Yeah, he is. I'm not talking about the ultimate ruler. I'm talking about like the, the earthly kingdom ruler. Is he, is, is, he, is, he, is he the ruler over Miami? Yes, he is. If you say no, you don't know what you're talking about. He is the president of America. He is the authority of this country. You, you want to have a conversation about it later? We can. <laughs> but I don't see him anywhere in Miami. He's not in my house. How do I know he's ruling over my house? Well, he's the authority, highest authority. I don't see many schools. I don't see many buildings here. Where, does that mean he's not the king of this area? He's at the place of authority. See where I'm going with this? I don't see Christ ruling over my life necessarily. I don't, I don't see him ruling over schools. I don't see him ruling over neighborhoods. I don't see that. Where are you ruling, Jesus? It don't look like it. Look, devil seems like he's ruling everywhere. And he's like, I'm in the place of true authority that you don't see, but it's there. It's there. You don't see it, you hear it. So the way we see the kingdom of Christ is not by looking around and seeing things that are visibly under Christ's dominion. It's by hearing that Christ, the perfect man, died, was resurrected, and now sits at the throne. We hear of the visible kingdom that's invisible kingdom that's visibly in heaven. We hear it. We hear it because he is up in that place that we cannot see. And you know, this is very practical, I think, for us. Because we think, man, like, look at my life. I don't see victory in my life. How do I know, how do I know I'm a part of the king's victory? Look at me. My body's falling apart. I mean, you know, like, my marriage is, like, jacked up. Like, I don't, I don't see victory in my marriage. Look, you know, in my Christian life, too, like, you know what? Like, I, I obey sometimes. I disobey sometimes. I feel defeated in my life, personal life. I feel defeated in my marriage. And, and you know what? When I'm at work, I don't really feel that victorious either because I feel like, how do I know that I'm a part of this kingdom? Because you hear. You hear the declaration that your king has triumphed and now sits in the place of rule and authority. You hear about it. You don't see it tangibly in all the places that we want to see it. So he, he's ruling now presently. He's ruling now invisibly, but he's also ruling victoriously. Look at this. God has resurrected this Jesus, and we're all witnesses of this. Therefore, he's been exalted at the right hand of God. So right hand of God and sitting, when you're sitting down after you do something, what does that mean? You're done. So, so Jesus, he's on his throne, and he's not like walking around and doing stuff. He's on his throne like, like this. Why is he sitting like that? Why, why, is he, why is Jesus in heaven like that? Because he's done. He's done. And listen, this is so important for us because I think the way we think about the kingdom of God in the church is like this. We're the army in World War II about to charge the beach. And Christ has given us all the tools and we're about to go in there and ba 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 kill soul. You know, we're going to win for Jesus. 
But Jesus is now sitting down, done. Done. Let me get another picture. It's probably helpful. <laughs> Nowadays, we have these things called, uh, what are those, uh, those little planes, the drones? They come up in there and they just drop all these massive bombs and clear it out and everything's finished. And you know what the, the military does after that? They come in there and claim that which the bomb has already kind of cleared out. Make sense? Beloved, 2,000 years ago, the king dropped his nuclear bombs on sin, death, hell, and the devil and wiped it out. And now it's our job not to build the kingdom, create the kingdom, establish the kingdom, but it's our job to claim and proclaim that which already is because he's sitting and he's done. And so we walk around not building, not creating, but declaring and announcing that which already is. He has done it victoriously already. Beloved, we live, in vict- we live in the victory of the kingdom. We're not working towards the victory of the kingdom. He is reigning victoriously. And I got two more things to say about the king on his throne. He's not only reigning victoriously, he's also reigning powerfully. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know the idea of footstool, make your enemy your footstool? It's the idea of, of a king putting his neck on someone's face. <laughs> so, so the picture of Christ in heaven is having his, his foot on the things underneath him. So he's one. Okay? It's like a picture of an MMA submission, if that makes any sense. Um, and so listen, we have this idea of Christ kind of like he's a, he's, a, like he's a president. You know how, how do presidents get in office? You got to elect them. So we got to elect Jesus into his kingly position if we're going to really experience his kingdom, right? And, and, and what Acts is saying, what the tongues are saying, what the fire is saying is, that, listen, Jesus is on his throne with full dominating conquering authority. He don't need nobody's permission or election. He's not coming to human hearts and saying, oh, I would like to be in your heart. Would you let me come into your heart? He's going, boom, that's mine. He's kicking down hearts and saying, the king has set up his throne and I'm here. Recognize. He's not coming to your life. You are a Christian already and saying, oh, if you make me the Lord of all of your life, then I'll rule over you. You know, as we talk, oh, you don't, he's, you don't experience the kingdom's power because you haven't surrendered all of your life to the king. Let me tell you something. He is your king whether you do it or not. He don't need you. It's like you, you, you need to acknowledge what is, but let me tell you something. I rule over you powerfully, mightily, unequivocally, not because of you giving me permission to as a Christian. So it's funny that people say, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do whatever I want as a Christian. You know, I'm going I'm I'm to go back to live my old life as a Christian. All right, good luck. Good luck. Because the king will have his way with you no matter what. He will rule you lovingly, continuously, faithfully, because his kingdom is a rule of power. Let me tell you something, man. Jesus Christ is not coming over here fighting Satan for his stuff. He is bullying Satan for his stuff. Let me give you another picture that may be helpful. You, you know Mayweather? Mayweather's a boxer. How many, how many people know Mayweather the boxer? I don't know. Everyone here should know who Mayweather is. 
Huh? Well, you need to know because it's part of the illustration. It's not a nice person. I'm not a nice person. <laughs> so, like, check this out. Mayweather, the way he beats somebody is like, boom, boom, boom. And he's like hiding and pum, 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 pum. And, and, and like the whole thing, he's just getting points and, and that's how he wins. You remember Tyson? How did Tyson win a fight? It's it. Who's Jesus? Oh, I'm playing with the devil. All right, I'm going to get some points. No, no, no. Jesus is stomping him out powerfully, unequivocally, no questions asked. That affects the way we do this stuff. We preach the gospel. We, we proclaim the gospel knowing that the king stomps on that opposes that oppose them powerfully. And there is no questions asked. When Christ's kingdom moves, there is nothing a man can do. He is ruling powerfully, invincibly, already. And here's the last point I'll say. He's ruling unequivocally. Unequivocally is just... Straight. It's just straightforward. Straightforward. To the point. Straightforward. Look at verse 36. Okay, I'm going to break my rule today. I'm not going to be able to finish for 15 minutes. Is that okay? Is that all right? I've been trying to do that, but it's not going to happen today. Okay? And you won't, hear, you won't hear me next week, so you'll get a break. How's that? Verse 36. Therefore... Let all the house, let, let the all house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Who made Christ Lord of creation? Who made Christ Lord of creation? God did. I'm about to, I'm about to unpack that a little bit. Listen, you know how like your kids get mad? My daughter does this all the time. Do I pick on my daughter too much? I can do that. You can't do that. People are like, oh, your daughter is, she's, she's, I'm like, anyway. Um, um, she's had these moments where she's like, you're not my dad. That's cute. That has nothing to do with you. I'm your dad. Okay. <laughs> right? You get the picture? Okay. What God is saying is that God has made Christ the Lord and ruler of every single space of this world. You're not making him Lord. He is Lord. Make Christ Lord of your life. Are you kidding me? Abriel is saying, I'll make you my dad of my life. I am your dad. He is the ruler and sovereign right to every ounce of planets. It's not our job to make him Lord, but to acknowledge that he is the conquering Lord who earned the right to rule by his death and resurrection. It's like, it's not my job to make water, water. Water's water. It's my job to acknowledge what water is and receive it. Say, oh, accept Christ. Excuse me? Excuse me? Oh, he, he has to be accepted by you? Like, like it's on your terms? 
No, 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 beloved. I know, I know what it's meant by that, but, but listen to the language of Acts. It's much more unequivocal. That's my point. God has accepted Christ as your Lord and ruler and Savior. So the key is you need to receive the fact that God has accepted Christ for you. God has made Christ your Lord. Acknowledge that. Not walking around thinking that there is some other option. He has unequivocal kingly authority. So we think about Pentecost, tongues, and, and fire, and wind, and are you guys drunk? What's the point? Christ is a prophet who reveals salvation to us. He's a priest who offered himself as a true man, the true price, the true new man. And lastly, he is the king who rules presently, victoriously, invisibly, unequivocally, powerfully. Now, do you guys want application or are you done? Let's do, let's do a Baptist thing here. Let's vote. Who wants application? One, two, three, four. Who doesn't? You better not raise your hand. I dare you. But you didn't. So you, some of you didn't raise your hand. Some of you didn't raise your hand. So you kind of like, I, I saw that. I saw that. I counted. All right. Let's do some applications. I counted it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on my wall. My wall of pastor frustration. All right. So if Christ is a prophet who reveals, we should be people who hear revelation, not live by self-discovery. Let me give you an example. You know how you, know, you, know how you, feel, you, know how you feel good about yourself? You look at yourself and you discover something about yourself that makes you feel good about yourself. Right? That's what you do. And you know how you feel bad about yourself? You look at yourself and you find something bad about yourself and you feel bad about yourself based upon you discovering something about yourself. What Pentecost is saying is the key to you living as a person is not what you discover about yourself, whether it's good things or bad things. It's what God has revealed to you in Christ. The key to your life is what God has revealed to you, not what you have discovered about yourself. So you look at yourself and you think, I'm loved of God. Why? Well, I think my marriage is pretty good. I think, I think I'm not in jail because of some horrendous crime. And, you know, you know I, I haven't divorced my, my husband. I think I'm pretty good because of that. Or I've discovered that about myself. Or you think, my, I, think, I, think, I think my life is pretty bad because, you know, I sinned and, you know, like I, I fell back again. And, and what, 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 what this is saying is, beloved, that question and answer has to be based upon what God has revealed about you in Christ. The key to your life is being, understand what God, Christ has revealed to you not what you discover about yourself. That's the whole point of this prophetic emphasis in the sermon. Beloved, if Christ is a prophet who reveals, we should be truth-focused people, not pragmatic-focused people. So let me give you an example of this. Um, I was in jail, and I was talking to, like, a, a prisoner. And he was like, man, I was trying this Jesus thing. And it didn't work out too well because I, was I wasn't getting, like, progress on my case. And then I started going to, like, the Hebrew Israelites. And you guys know what Hebrew Israelites are? Cassie, you better know. That's all, that's all in the hood where you guys are at. Hebrew Israelites is like this cult that thinks that, like, uh, a lot of things. But one of the things they think is that, you know, you're, you can be saved by keeping the Mosaic law. So he said, he said I was going to, like, the, uh, the Hebrew Israelites meeting, and, like, my life got better. And I says, I says, I says let me ask you an honest question. If 
If some woman was acting like she was like your, your wife, but she was actually married to another guy and she really wasn't your wife, and it makes you feel really good, would you, is that good? No, no that, that's, that's not good. Of course it's not good. It's not true. Right? So when Christ is a prophet who reveals, that means that we want truth from Christ. I don't want fairy tales and feel-good stuff that's not real. Like, when people come and tell me, oh, you're a great person, and you have all this great potential. I don't want to hear that. That's not true. I'm not a great person. I'm a wretched man. Give me truth. What's the truth? You are bad, evil, and corrupt, but your Savior, who you've been identified with, is wonderful, powerful, gracious, and sufficient. We should be wanting to hear truth that builds us in the truth of Christ, not just pragmatic things and feel-good things because Christ is a prophet. Going to the Christ being the priest who was offered. Beloved, if Christ is a priest who was offered for our sins and he paid the true price, we have to stop trying to pay price for sins. You hear what I'm saying? He's like, I don't believe it. Listen, whatever you do to make you feel best about your sin problem is your sacrifice before God. Some of you, like, you're offering these your kids, man. You're doing everything with your kids to make them to be a certain way so they can make you feel good about your sinfulness. And what Pentecost is saying is that Christ is your payment for your sinfulness, not your kids. Some of you are using your Christian life. You think that if you can fix this, adjust this, improve this in your Christianity, then, then, then you have some place to feel confidence. Christ is saying in Pentecost that he is a payment for your sins, not your Christian life. Some of you, some of you do this. You use your marriages as an altar to make yourself feel good about your sins. So if your marriage is good, if you can make it this way, if you can make it that direction, then you feel good about your sins. And, and what Pentecost is saying, listen, Christ is the payment for your sins, not your marriage, not your kids, not your job, not, 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 not anything you do. He, he paid everything already for you. And so it's your job to receive that payment in full and not try to make payments in all of our clever ways. Going to the king element, trying to move up quickly and not make it to an hour. I don't want to go to an hour. How about 55? Beloved, if Christ is the king who rules presently, that means we should be most defined by the fact that we have been conquered and not that we're conquering. You know what I just said? We should be more defined by the fact that Christ has conquered us and not what you're conquering. What makes you feel good about life? You've got to conquer something, right, ladies? I'm going to conquer my house today. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, fellas, what makes you feel? I'm going to go to work today, you know? I'm going to do my job. And I'm going to go home and... And, and I'm going to conquer my spouse, and she's going she's gonna to respect me. Well, but you know what should make us feel the best about our lives? Is that we've been conquered already. And, and it's somewhat, let me give you a picture that's helpful. Like, my, my kids get allowance. Look, allowance is great. Work for allowance. Seek to do things for the kingdom of God. But the reason you live in that house is because I got a salary that, that, that pays for the house. So as, beloved, we should feel most good about the fact that Christ has already conquered us by his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection. He's already conquered us, and we shouldn't find our, 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 our ultimate sense of security from how many things we conquer for Jesus. You know why I'm so miserable? You know, can I be honest with you? You know why I'm miserable most? Because I can't conquer something for Jesus. 
whether it's a personal situation. And, and what, what Acts is saying is that feel most comforted by the fact that you have been conquered. And I'll say one more thing about application. If Christ is the king who rules unequivocally, we should be trusting in what God has made Christ to be. Listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. We should be trusting in what God has made Christ to be, not trusting in what Christ makes you to be. You hear what I said? God has made Christ, the Lord, apart from your life, irrespective of your life. And so what we should be trusting is what God has made Christ to be for you, and you shouldn't be trusting what Christ is making you to be for him. You know what I think the biggest problem I think with Christians is they want to trust more in what Christ is making them to be on a day-to-day level and trust very little in what God has made Christ to be perfectly on an already level. You should be trusting mostly in what God has made Christ to be for you. So Pentecost, wind, fire, tongues, what's the point? Christ is the priest for us, he's our prophet, and he's our king. That's the point. That's the explanation that Peter gives. That's the focus. Ruling and reigning, revealing what we need to know about salvation, offering up what we need to be right with God. We pray. Father, thank you that we have learned that you are our prophet, you are our priest, and you are our king. So, Lord, let us live under your revelation about who you are for us. Let us live under your sacrifice and what you have done for us. And let us live under your authority in which you have conquered us by yourself. Amen. That concludes our message, and we hope that you were inspired by it. If you'd like to hear more about the gospel or find out more about Reconciled Church Miami, please connect with us using one of the ways listed on our website, reconciledchurchmiami.org.